Talk Recorded live. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here with another installation of Yahweh's Covenant People. And my co-host again this evening is William Fink. We're going to be continuing our series on the book of Revelation. Last week, we pretty much completed uh, through chapter 5, and we quickly began our study of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But since it's been two weeks since we studied this, and uh, we really didn't get very far into chapter 6, we'll just start from the beginning of chapter 6. I think, uh, Bill, also you have some kind of recap of uh, uh, chapter 5. Well, well, yes, it's just a couple of things I would like to hit on in Chapter 5 because they're important. And, and first, I'd like to say that um, what well, while she's here is Tia Tefi very often in the forums, especially on the um, Voice of Christian Israel program, and, and she sent me the verse that I could not think of last night oh, okay. concerning the afterlife, right? And, and that, that's the um, – it's Job 19, 25 through 27. Now, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the last day upon the earth. And, and though my skin, after my skin, worms destroy this body, and, and there's some added words here in the King James, but yeah. the sense isn't really changed. Yet in my flesh I shall, shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eye shall behold, and not another although my reins, meaning his organs, be consumed within me. So, so Job is clearly talking about a, a resurrection mm-hmm. of the physical body. Right, and right. The absolutely. last day, just as Paul taught in yeah. 1 Corinthians 15. That, that, um, and, and I just had to stress that I think that's important. Yeah. Because even though salvation does um, usually, if not always, mean preservation in this world, that the end promise of Christianity is that we all return to this world. It's, it's salvation in the flesh. Absolutely. I think Ephesians chapter 3 puts a, that our flesh will be redeemed. I think that's well, exactly well, right. how Paul puts it, right? Our right. Flesh will I be just redeemed. wanted, a, yeah. a lot of people say there's not, no such thing in the Old Testament. Oh. And, and that's okay. some of the scoffers, but they haven't read the entire Old Testament, right? Yeah. Uh, they haven't read Job, I, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> and, and most of the anti seed liners have never read any of the passages about Esau and the Canaanites, right? <laughs> well, right. <laughs> Those passages right. don't exist, right? Uh, All the scoffers have not read the whole Bible. Yeah. Um, Revelation chapter 5. You know, two weeks ago in chapter 5, we saw a scroll with seven seals, and the scroll had writing on it front and back. And, and only Yahshua Christ himself, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. And if we consider that, we have to understand that Yahshua Christ is God. Mm-hmm. That's the only way he could be the Root of David. Was able to open the seven seals, and each time he opens one, we see a pronouncement is made concerning things which are happen to happen upon the earth. The seventh seal itself contains seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet contains seven vials. Mm-hmm. So we see these nested judgments against the children of Israel, right? Yeah. The, the first seal is finally opening at the beginning of chapter 6. And I must say that the imagery of Revelation 5 reminds me of a challenge which Yahweh himself made in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 through 29. And, and this, this is important. And, and it's important to consider in the light of the, the idea that we could possibly have more than one valid religion in the world, right? Because we don't. Yeah. And, and um, that's Yahweh's challenge in Isaiah 41. That, and Christ, yeah, you know, Christ said in the Gospel of John that nobody gets to the Father except through 
me. Mm-hmm. And, and here we see that only Yahweh can tell the past or the future. That's why Yahshua is the only one right. who is able to open the seventh seal. Right. right? The Reverend Sun Young Moon doesn't count. <laughs> oh, well, right. He's always annoying. He's already anointed himself the the, um, the the Messiah of the world, right? Right. That's just <laughs> he's, right. A, he's a despicable. <laughs> That's right. Thing. Race mixer is what he is. Yeah. Yeah. That, yes. He's also a race mixer yeah. and, and a, a, a pompous ass. <laughs> That's right. Right. There are other prophets. Yeah. You know, all all other prophets are false. All other prophets are false prophets, and I'd like to read that Isaiah 41 um, from verse 21. Produce your cause, says Yahweh, and bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob. Let them, talking about the, the false gods and the idols, bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they may be, in other words, what's considered in the past, and, and that we may consider them and know the later end of them, or declare for us the king, things the things to come. And, and this entire section here is just a challenge to all these other religions that if they can't reveal the future, that they're false religions. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we see that Christianity is the only true religion. Right. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, and I just want to uh, stress verse 5 of chapter 5. And one of the elders says to me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And this expression, root of David, can only be a reference to the tree of life, you know, the DNA tree that began with Adam in the garden, you know, proceeded through Judah, through David, and, uh, you know, and ultimately Jesus Christ and our seed line. That's the only thing that this could mean. Well, well, right, absolutely. And, and the, um, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? A lot of people want to scoff and, and try to claim that Christ was of, of Ephraim, and they are fools. The only reading of this, this sentence in Greek can possibly be that the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the root of David are all the same entity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can't be read any other way. The That's Greek right. grammar does not allow for it. Yes. Very good. Very good. And then verse 9, I'd like to stress also, and they sung a new song saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred. Of course, talking about the Israelite kindred and tongue and people and nation. So well, there's only one person this could be. <laughs> it's Yahshua uh, Messiah that redeemed us, okay, who was slain for us. Okay, uh, and then uh, to set up chapter 6, I'll just uh, re- uh, recite verse 14 of chapter 5. And the four beasts, said, and of course these four beasts represent the uh, four main houses of the tribes of Israel and also the four beasts that are protecting the, the DNA in, uh, in the Garden of Eden. The beast said, Amen, and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Chapter 6, verse 1, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts referring to these four beasts in the previous chapter, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And uh, you know, typically, uh, the 
you know, from Rand and Comparay. This is a reference to the generals of the early Roman Empire riding on a white horse. Is that how you understand it, or is there more to it than that? Well, well, right. No, that's how I understand it. And and before we get into this, I, I'd like to. I have some introductory notes for Chapter Six, oh, and, okay. because this is I, I feel important. Here in Chapter Six, we see the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's evident to me, and and we'll see this as this unfolds that these four horsemen represent four stages in the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire. Okay. It can be argued that this vision of the four horsemen may mean something different. However, that argument becomes less plausible once we examine and interpret the chapters of the Re- Revelation which follow chapter 6, okay. and, and yeah. especially through chapter 9 and 10, right? It, it's also evident that many elements in these four horsemen also accurately describe the development and demise of uh, of the imperialist empires of modern times, and that's because history repeats itself, mm-hmm. usually because men fail to ignore its lessons. Right. And if we could <laughs> no, learn from history, lessons, right. <laughs> well, well, right. If we could learn from history, we'd stop repeating its mistakes. Right. It, it's a shame that most of the people that know history are stuffy academics and tucked away in universities or or, or, or reading rooms somewhere, and, and the people running the country never know history, right? That's because right. they're charismatic, yeah, they're, they're charismatic they're making personalities. History. Charismatic personalities with Jewish advisors. Yeah, exactly. It's um, people are easily swayed by empty promises of 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 the short sighted, and and that's the way it is. The charismatic Mm -hmm. guy, Mm -hmm. election on television. But the um, but but we did establish last week that the historical view of prophecy. And, and the fact that um, Irenaeus, one of the earliest church, church, Christian church writers, even even acknowledged that this um, the, the revelation talks about the fall of Rome. Okay. And, and if it talks about the fall of Rome, and and the earliest church writers acknowledge that, that then we in Israel identity who accept the revelation as having unfolded over history, we are on the side of what I would have to call truly conservative, original Christian interpretation of, of the prophets. And, and the futurists and the preterists are other ones in error. That, that it's that the, from earliest times, it's the historical interpretation of the Revelation, which was the one that was understood to be the correct interpretation. Mm-hmm. That this would represent history unfolding. Right, right. Well, as for um, that, this white horse in, in the first verses of, of chapter 6, most commentators date the Roman Empire to begin with the era of the Caesars. And, and Compare did that and Rand. And I don't remember what I had written in, in my notes for, um, for, for Clifton Emmerheiser's um, presentation of the Compare Revelation series. But even my own opinions have evolved in many areas since then, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to me, I, I don't, you know, they claim that they would claim that either with the dictatorship of Julius Caesar or the monarchical system set up under Octavian or Augustus Caesar, that's when the White Horse period begins. And and I believe that this view is very skewed and demonstrates a poor understanding of Christian systems of government. The term empire is properly applied to a government which rules over more than one nation of people, right? Mm-hmm. That the American Heritage College Dictionary, third edition, says that an empire is a political unit comprising a number of territories or nations and ruled by a single supreme authority. Technically, 
Well, when the Trojans came from from Rome, uh, I mean from Troy and settled in Rome in Alba Longa, the Alban colony, which eventually spawned Rome 400 years later, that was already an empire with the joining of the Trojan refugees under Ahenius to the people of Latium 400 years before Rome was founded. And, and therefore, Rome is technically always an empire, and it was never properly a, a city-state, a, a nation as a city-state, meaning a, a, a um, an independent unit of, rule, of, of government ruling over one tribe of people, mm-hmm. homogenous people. Livy, the historian, describes a tradition that Rome was actually founded by Mars, the Latin god of war, which to me perhaps reveals the reason for the creation of the city in the first place as a vehicle for conquest. Early in its history, the young city had accepted all sorts of political and other refugees from various Greek states, and Livy actually records that, and and therefore may certainly be viewed as the New York of antiquity, right? Mm -hmm. And and for this reason, we see that that there's a class division right from the very beginning in Rome of patricians and plebeians in the oldest accounts, the patricians being the, the actual um, claimed descendants of the noble classes of, of Troy and, and the, the, the upper class people or the, or the elite, right, which might be the scum, and, and the plebeians being the common people. And, and by any measure, Rome certainly became an empire by the 3rd century B.C., and, and actually, it, it actually happened long before that. But by the 3rd century B.C., it had already conquered and defeated all of the other tribes of the Italian peninsula, mm-hmm. the Etruscans, the Sabines, the Samnites, the Greek states of southern Italy and Sicily had fallen under Roman dominion. And that, and that was at one time called Magna Graecia or Great Greece, okay. because there were more Greeks there than there were in Greece. Okay. There, so- there were more Greek settlers in southern Italy than there were in Greece. Right. So uh, are you saying that the white horse would be whatever um, general unified these various Italian slash Roman? Well, the white horse represents the period of time of Roman conquest and the growth of this empire. Okay. Okay. Right? And, and it, it overlaps with the red horse, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we'll, we'll see that soon. And... and the, the process of Rome conquering its neighbors began almost as soon as the city was originally founded. Okay. In the first 50 years of its existence, that they had conquered the, the Fidenahi and the, the people of the Ends and, and created colonies mm-hmm. and, in other parts of Italy outside Rome that were considered Roman colonies. So it started and, out as an expansionist, conquering-type state, whether you want to call it an empire or not, I guess would be... Yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, well, right. Well, it technically meets the definition of empire already okay. by that time. Okay. And, and that's, yeah, you know, that's our idea of empire is, yeah, you know, this great sprawling system of government that 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 um that, that controls land in in across the continent or on multiple continents, and and that is the, the grand imperialist empire vision that. That, that we know from history, and Rome will become that very soon. Rome becomes that before the time of the Caesars, as I'm about to explain. Uh-huh. But an empire is technically simply one government ruling over multiple nations. Right. People. Okay. Okay. Now, the um, by, by the end of the 3rd century, Rome controlled all of the peoples, that they held dominion over all of the peoples of Sicily and what we know now as the Italian Peninsula. What we think, ah, that's a little country now, but back then it was a huge country, right? I mean, 
that that's the the methods of travel have have made our world our view of the world very small and and communication well well um by the end of the second century b c Rome ruled all of Greece, Asia Minor, Sardinia, parts of Spain, and, and the formerly Phoenician territories of northern Africa. Rome was definitely a great empire long before the Caesars. Okay? okay. And, and as late as the first century BC, there was a social war in Italy between Rome and the Italian nations. And that was 91 to 88 BC. So those Italian nations were still trying to assert their independence from Rome, from this white horse, which, which was given this, this, this <laughs> crown. And this sword means that, that the crown means that it, it's given the, the um, imprimatur of Yahweh to go out and, and, and do this, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that's to me what the crown means. And, and, and I'm sorry, not the sword. The bow means that it's given, a, it's given a commission from God to conquer these nations afar off. Okay. And, and that's what the bow means and, right. and the crown, I believe. That, yeah. Now, the, um, the, the last social, the social war in Italy ended the um the will of the Italian provinces to rise up against Rome. They never rose up against Rome again. And 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 Sororius had a revolt in Spain in eighty three to seventy two BC and, and they were not really civil wars. Rather they were revolts by already conquered nations against Roman dominion. Now, now the, so the Caesars did not begin an empire. They inherited one. Okay. There's further expansion in the later periods of Roman history under the under the Caesars. And, and 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 first among those are Dacia under Trajan and and Britain under um, Claudius, right? Yeah. But but those that that um that the Romans you know they were already well that they were already an empire for a long time before Julius Caesar came along. Okay. All right. Uh, what do you know about the Dacians? Because they're obviously a Scythian tribe. Now, how did they get the name Dacians? Any I'm idea? not sure where that name comes from. I would have to investigate it. Okay. Because they were not only Scythians, they were they were Thracians originally. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Okay. And and Scythians had had um come to inhabit a lot of that land south of the Danube and pushed the Thracians aside. Okay. In, in the third and fourth centuries BC, uh-huh. the, the the Germanic tribes were forever trying to get south of the Danube and and west of the Rhine. And that's because, and Caesar even talked about that, about how many Germanic tribes were constantly coming west of the Rhine to settle in Gaul, and, and the Roman need to defend against that, and, and it, if they wanted to hold their holdings that he had won for them in Gaul, right? Yeah. The, the, um, the land is a lot better, and the climate is a lot better. And, and the land is a lot more arable, and, and north of the Danube and east of the Rhine was heavily forested, a lot of swamps, and had very bitter winters. Okay. So, so it's the, those Germanic tribes were always trying to push their way into the empire. Right, right, yeah, okay. Uh, so um, before we get into uh, verse 3, I just want to quickly state that the white horse, in the end times is not the same as this white horse. <laughs> okay. The oh, right. Horse, Absolutely yeah. not. And some people make the mistake of confusing the two because the white horse in the end times is the Ashwa Messiah coming back, you know, to kick butt. Okay. Well, right. The, the only, the only resemblance I would see is that both white horses have a, a, um, the, the 
ascent of Yahweh God to do what they did, right? Right, okay. I mean, Rome had to become an empire. It, it was basically prophesied by Daniel, right, yeah. that Rome would become a great empire. So, so the white horse was represents the, the, um, the ascent of God for them to go out and conquer the world. And, and the bow is given, it, given to the white horse, the rider on the white horse, so that he could make conquests far away because that's what a bow does. And, and Comparé and Rand had pointed that out. Right. Okay. And before I forget, if, if I do forget on the so-called pale horse, shouldn't that be green horse? As a well, well, yes. The pale horse is a green horse, and it represents sickness and, okay. and all this stuff. Okay. All right. So verse 3 then. And we are in uh, chapter 6. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. And the power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Okay, so this is the red horse. Well, well right. And, and contrary to the... To the um... This is the Edomite horse, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the Jewish user has been back different yeah, generals right. and, and caused all the problems. That, that, that's an aside, but it's probably not far from the truth. But the, um, the, the, the red horse has a sword rather than a bow. And, and the red horse does not have a crown. Uh-huh. And, and the sword allows the, re the red horse to, um, to, kill and, and slay and conquer people near to it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it says that they will kill, they will slay one another. The Romans of the early Republican period, they often appointed a temporary dictator in times of war, who, who once the threat of war had passed would revert to and, and voluntarily turn back power and, and hand over power to the regular government. Eclipsing the period of the Republic is the first real self-appointed dictator to rule Rome wasn't Julius Caesar, it was Sulla. Mm. And, and Sulla, and, and this, that this is evident that this marked the transition from the white horse to the red horse period is because after Sulla, Rome suffered very many great civil wars. Uh, okay. and, and a whole series of civil wars spanning... Um, about 70 years, and, and Sulla was in the, the um, early 1st century B.C. Now, the first great and actual civil war between was between supporters of Lucius Cornelius Sulla and Gaius Marius, and it took place from 88 to 87 B.C., and it was followed by another from 82 to 81 B.C. between the same parties. Okay. And Sulla, victorious on both occasions, he made himself the self-appointed dictator of Rome, but he didn't use it to tyrannize Rome. Uh -huh. he, he used that, and, and Rome hadn't seen a dictator from, from, the time, from the time of the Punic Wars until the time of Sulla. That's how long it had been. Okay. That now, um, Sulla used this dictatorship that he granted himself. To, that he seized, he took the opportunity to institute reforms, and then, quite surprisingly, he relinquished his power voluntarily when he thought his reforms were instituted, <laughs> restored the republic, and he retired peacefully. So he was a beneficent dictator. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, he was. Okay. And his, 
his retirement shocked the world. Right. <laughs> because Batman just simply hands over voluntarily a great kingdom back to its people. Yeah. And, probably... Okay, I'm done. It's your turn again. Yeah. yeah you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, well, it wasn't long after that that Rome suffered another series of great civil wars. <laughs> and and th there was the rebellion of Lepidus against the Senate in 77 B.C. There was something called the Catiline Conspiracy in 63 to 62 B.C. There was a protracted and, and really violent civil war between Julius Caesar and Gnaeus Pompey from 49 to 45 B.C., and in that civil war, over half of the empire was the battleground. Uh, I mean, they fought just about everywhere, from Spain mm. to Egypt. Okay. And, and there was the post-Sassanian civil war between the Senate army led by Cicero and Octavian, who would be the future Augustus, right? Yeah. And the forces of Antony and Lepidus in 44 B.C. And then there was the so-called Liberator Civil War to avenge the murder of Caesar, which found Antony and Octavian on the same side this time. Yeah. And, and they were the allies of that they were allies of the Second Triumvirate, and, and they fought against Brutus, who, who was the murderer of Caesar, and Gaius Longinus in 42 B.C. And then there was a revolt in Sicily led by the son of Pompey against that second triumvirate, which lasted from 44 to 36 B.C. Then there was the civil war of Lucius Antonius and Fulvia Antonia, the brother of Mark Antony, against Octavian in 41 to 40 B.C. And finally... There was the last and most famous civil war, which was, of course, between Octavian and Agrippa in the west and Mark Antony and Cleopatra in the east, which ended at the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C. And that ended the Roman Republic because Octavian, I think, had had enough. And he established a monarchy, which we know is as the, the, you know, the beginning of the Roman Caesars. And, and this, was, this had to be the red horse period of the Roman Empire, where peace was taken from the earth, and, and for many decades, the citizens of the empire slew one another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the Battle of Actium was the uh, end of uh, this basic period of uh, civil war? Well, well, yes, that, yeah. that's what, what, what I under, that, that's what I believe. It was basically the end of the Civil War. Octavian secured his rule over the entire empire. And, and there was, there were power struggles, but, and, and, um, I had planned on discussing this with the next horse, right? The black horse, but with the period that begins at the monarchy of Augustus, who is Octavian, right? He changed his name. Right. We see a relative, a relative peace brought to the empire, which lasted practically 200 years, and, and relative because no major wars were fought inside of the empire between its own citizens during that time, okay. although there were some power struggles in Rome. Yeah, you know, that they were on a very, on a much smaller scale, well, like the year of four emperors, which was a year and a half period where there were four emperors, right after Nero died, that there was... um. Otho, and then Vitellius, and then Dalba, and then Vespasian, all in a space of about 15 months, right? Okay. And, right. and, and Tactus wrote about that. And, and, um, but, but aside from that, 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 that was not especially violent as far as the citizenry was concerned. But the most of the people were at peace during right. that period. Yeah, so you know, there was like, the uprising in Judea, right. the problem with the Picts in Britain, and, and little things like that that any empire suffers as, as a matter of course. Right. But there were no major civil wars 
for a long time after Augustus Caesar had finally seized control. Yeah. So it sounds like in our American period, the uh, uh, after our Civil War, we uh, began expansionist uh, military campaigns overseas, which, of course, which are unconstitutional, but nevertheless, that's been part of our history since then. But let me uh, read about the uh, black horse here since we're into it. Verse 5. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld, and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see you hurt not the oil and the wine. Okay, so what are all of these um, measures about? Well, well, first, I believe that the scales the, the scales mean justice. Okay. That, that means judgment, right? The, 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 the scales uh, basically mean judgment throughout Christian, um, the symbolism of Christianity and, and Hebrewism. Okay. The, um, well, with success comes decadence, right? Right. And therefore, we see the words of Paulatasis that the Romans had become a morally corrupt people, and, and those words are substantiated by the historian Tacitus, who also inferred in the Germania that in the Rome of his time, immorality was considered fashionable and up-to-date. Okay. And just as significantly before the reign of Augustus, Rome had a tolerance of the religions of those nations which were subjected to the empire, but from this time, compulsory worship of the emperor slowly began to be instituted and came to the fore with Caligula and Nero. For three centuries, Christians were persecuted, usually at the instigation of the Jews, who most often remained a privileged class. Uh-huh. Usury, prostitution, the circuses, and all the other vices were very popular and prevalent throughout this entire time, and the Jews grew quite comfortable in pagan Rome. Right. The rider of the black horse carries a scale, which signifies judgment. The decline and fall of Rome is a very complex issue, but coin clipping and debasement of the currency were a plague in the, throughout this, this entire history, throughout this entire period, and the oversupply of money in any economy leads to price inflation, as we see here in America today. Right. The, the warnings concerning the prices of grain and the oil and the wine, and, and this, is, this can be demonstrated in the history of Rome, signify this period of both price inflation and food shortages, and as, the Ro- as Rome required the hire of larger armies and bigger bureaucracies to maintain control of the provinces, the currency became debased, the taxes went up, food prices climbed, and, and this is exactly the same process we see occurring in, in Imperial America well, for right. the last 60 years. That's right, right. The rider on a black horse has no crown and no weapons. The, the end of Roman conquest overseas was with Trajan. Trajan, Claudius conquered um, Britain for, for the most part, and, and Trajan conquered the Dacians and, and secured Dacia and Pannonia for the empire, and that was, I think, in 106 A.D. Now, the black horse, that there are no weapons because Rome has done, for the most part, what was successful conquest. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and that he had no weapons seems to denote that. It, it also seems to denote the period of peace, which I had described was ushered in by the reign of Augustus, because there are no weapons close by either, right? That they're not killing each other 
during this period. Right. But they, they, it, it does become a very profligate, immoral, decadent society. Right. And, so, and uh, that, so that he had Excuse me. Do you think the balances then are uh, basically representative of false weights and measures? Well, well, it can represent both, but but it also represents judgment to me because of the decadence, and and that's what the black horse represents. Okay. Right. Right. Now, now it could you you could take it to mean false weights and measures because there there are uh, there are many serious incidences in Roman history at this point where the currency is debased. And a debased currency is a, a representative of false weights mm-hmm. and measures. I, right. I mean, there's no doubt. So, so I think that, but, but I also believe that it represents judgment because the, the, um, the green horse is, is the, um, the, the signals the fall of Rome. Right. Okay. And so what, is, uh, what does it mean to see you not hurt the oil and wine? Well, well, that I think it is um, representative of not. It, it says, "Do not do injustice to the oil and the and the wine." That that word means don't deal. Do not. My translation says, "And you should not deal unrighteously with the oil okay. and the wine." Well, and, and to me, they represent the commodities, right? The barley, the oil, and the wine represent the commodities, and and with price inflation and and. Oil and wine can often be cut, and, and people are looking to make profit, and, okay. and Rome has become a very decadent and dishonest society. To me, that's just a, a sign of the decadence and dishonesty of the times. Okay. But well, maybe those commodities weren't actually being messed with. <laughs> maybe maybe the Caesar said, okay, you don't, you don't mess with the oil, you don't mess with the wine, right? <laughs> Why don't? Don't dilute the wine, right? If you dilute the wine, the customers won't come back, right? So it, it well, could... well, it's it's right, and and I think I would probably I don't know if I can if if we can investigate Roman history during this period to that um, okay. to that level. I don't know if the yeah you know I I am not a student of the Middle Ages first. I'm a student of antiquity first, yeah, and, and right. <laughs> my, reading, my reading in this period is wanting, so I don't have any more understanding of this than that. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, but obviously we're talking about the economy and the commodities that were, uh, you know, common in those days. Okay, very good. Now, any more on, on the black horse? Well, well the, the – um... I, I do. The rider on a black horse had no crown and no weapons, and that he had no weapons seems to me to denote that period of peace, uh-huh. but that he had no pr- crown means that these rulers were not true scepter bearers either, those of the line of Zarajuda, which we saw on the white horse, right? Uh-huh. And, and which the first fr- – that, that line is the line that those first Caesars had come from, and and rather – this period was Rome was governed by a very long line of military generals who sought for and gained power either through treachery, through politics, through the usurpation or murder of the previous emperor, and, and that was very common throughout this period. And, and while some of these men were nobles, such as Vespasian, I, I believe was noble, many were not. Many of them were actually debased psychopaths, mm-hmm. and, and it may be estimated. I believe that this period, this black horse period, began to wane in the reign of the Emperor Caracalla, who granted citizenship freely to all of the freemen, the former slaves of the empire. A lot of the slaves were freed, and, and, and Caracalla granted all of these people, regardless of their race, 
he granted them um, citizenship primarily because the government could then expect an increase of tax revenue. Okay. Citizenship, which was often bought in the earlier periods, and, and we see record of that even in the books of Acts in the Bible. But from the time of Caracalla, Roman citizenship became very cheap, and, and that was around 212 A.D. Now, Caracalla also further debased the currency, and he increased the pay of the legions, the armies, and imposed oppressive taxes throughout the provinces. There were many other evil evil emperors, but Caracalla definitely stood out among them. Okay. Gibbon called Caracalla the common enemy of mankind. <laughs> Importantly, Caracalla also fought a battle with the Alemanni, which did not end decisively, except that he bribed the Germanic invaders with a large sum of money in order to make peace. And we know that that... that from observing history, that that is a serious sign of the decline of any empire right. when it has to start bribing groups of people, special interest groups, in order to keep the peace. Yeah, as right. we see here in America all the time, and and this same tactic was used that that's the later emperors used against the Goths and the Vandals, and that tactic failed them miserably. So this, the, the time of Caracalla, two twelve A.D. is when I estimate that, that the Black Horse period began to wane and we see a transition to the Green Horse period. Now, the Green Horse period represents sickness and decay. And, and okay. if, if Daniel said that what killed the empire, that this beast, it was um, race mixing, that then we have to consider race mixing to be the... Um, the cause of the disease that killed the beast, and that would be marked with Caracalla, because Rome had strict citizenship laws, and Rome had strict laws of intermarriage. Mm-hmm. And, and you couldn't just marry anybody that you wanted to. You had to marry somebody from certain nations, and, and there were only certain nations granted rights to intermarry with Roman citizens. Okay. Okay? But once all these slaves were made citizens, race mixing was on in old Rome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we're our 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 country is certainly in that situation right now. Let me read uh, about the fourth seal here. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, "Come and see." And I looked, and behold, a pale or rather green horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him. And power was given to them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death. And with the beasts of the earth, so that sounds beasts of the earth sounds like your uh, race mixed slaves brought in and used as uh, mercenaries, etc. Well, well, absolutely, I, I, I believe so. Uh-huh. That, that's exactly what that's saying. That's the same reason why Daniel said that the empire fell because of the the clay and the iron not being able to 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 cling together right right so, so that so that the um well when the germanic tribes invaded rome the the people had no unity and the germanic tribes easily prevailed yes yes Be, because once these slaves were all created made citizens and and the race mixing process began the unity of being a a roman didn't mean anything anymore mm Mm-hmm. And, and we have the same problem, the same disease in this country today. Being an American means nothing anymore. 
everybody wants to be a hyphenated American. And everybody except for the, for the, um, the, the ignorant white people that don't know any better. Yeah. But being, being an American means nothing now. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, the question in the chat room about Caligula is Caligula in this era or has he come later? No, no, Caligula, we're way past Caligula. Oh, we are? Caligula, first, very little is actually known about Caligula except maybe through Suetonius. Suetonius wrote a hundred years later. A lot of it may or may not be propaganda. Suetonius is still on my reading list. He he wrote The Lives of the Caesars, right? But he wrote it in the middle of the second century, I believe, um, A.D. Now, now Tacitus, I've read all of Tacitus. But the Caligula years are missing from Tacitus. Interesting. Oh, yeah, along with half of the Nero years and a couple of Claudius years. It it seems to me that Tacitus was um, revised to be made politically correct, that somebody just (laughs) removed chapters and tossed them in the wood chipper, right? Right, yeah, or the manuscript got tossed in the fire, right? (laughs) Well, well, great parts of it, yes. Yeah, And. what the truth is about Caligula, well, it was a very decadent period in Rome, but Caligula was um, actually the emperor which followed Tiberius. And, oh. and Tiberius is the emperor under whose reign um, Joshua Christ was crucified. Right, right. And I believe Caligula was his direct successor. Uh-huh. I might be corrected on that, but I think that's correct. I think I'm right. Okay. That the, um, so, so that was pretty early in Roman history, right? And, and Caligula was may or may not have been outdone by Nero. We really don't know, right? Okay, okay. All right. Okay, verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And, of course, so... Where the this fifth seal is not about any of the horses. The four horses are over and done with at this point. So what are these verses nine and ten telling us about? Well, well, right. These are the people that suffered the tribulation in this fall of Rome. I, I'd like to be um. I, I'd like to make a, a couple of notes. The um first of all, well, we've talked to that. We've said to that that. Pale horse is really green, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the green, <laughs> the green color represents sickness and decay. Right. And, and it's Daniel chapter two that makes a a direct statement that the iron and the clay would not cleave together, and it says that they will mingle themselves with the seed of men. Mm-hmm. And and if I'm not mistaken, that word man, men is actually Enosh. Okay. In, in Daniel chapter two, right? And, and if these people are Adamites and they're mixing themselves with the seed of Enosh, that that would represent a, a, a race-mixing situation, right? right? Because Enosh is just any man, and, and it very well could be a man of another race sure. who's a freed slave of, of Rome, right? Now, now this, um, this sickness and decay of the empire under the burdens of race-mixing vice and political corruption finally begins its decline and and where it finally succumbs to the Germanic invaders in the uh-huh. 5th century A.D. Now, now there was a 50-year period, a 50-year crisis, in which there were prolonged periods of virtual anarchy in Rome from 235 to 284 A.D. And, and that's a period where the empire barely survived and, and um, un, until a strong enough military gov- governor could, could rise up and, and become emperor, right? Uh-huh. 
but the disease which which finally kills the empire is definitely race mixing and it and by this time it's terminal and and this there, there were i didn't go and pull out the dates but there were many persecutions of christians during this period and and um okay. tens of thousands of, of christians died during the times of the caesars yeah. and these verses 9 through 11 these people with white robes yeah. are going to be mentioned again in Revelation chapter 7 as the innumerable multitude of Revelation 7 verses 9 through 17. Yeah. These yeah. visions are indeed connected, and that might upset a lot of people living today who imagine themselves to be among this number of 144,000 people who are going to be sealed in Revelation chapter 7. But these things have to be read in the context in which they appear, and, and not by any private interpretation. Here, those saints who were caught up in the tribulation of, of this that, that's going on with these four horsemen, yeah. they are offering a prayer of desire for Yahweh to avenge them. Okay, okay. So this is the aftermath of the four horsemen, and there's still all kinds of you know, civil war and whatnot going on. Let me read verse 11 here. And white robes were given to every one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So this sounds like the persecution of Christians. What's this little season here? Is this the... Uh... Well, well, I translate verse 11, and there had been given to each of them a white robe and spoken to them that they should rest for a little while. Okay. Until they should be satisfied, and their fellow ser- satisfied, meaning that their 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 desire, their their prayer will be answered, right? right. Okay. And their fellow servants and their brethren who are also going to be killed like them. Uh-huh. And, and let me say that when when the Goths and the Vandals invaded Rome and and finally destroyed it, the Romans the the Romans. We're, we're, let's call them Catholics, right? They're, okay. they're really sort of still proto-Catholics, right? right? Yeah, right. But the the, um, the Goths and the Vandals were Aryan Christians. Okay. They were already, to a great extent, converted to Christianity. Okay, they're but not was, uh, they're not pagans at this point. No, they're mostly Aryan Christians. Okay. And and there was a great amount of bitterness and rivalry between the Aryan Christians. And and the the Catholic, Catholic right, Christian, right, right, okay. or, or the more traditional Christians of the Mediterranean, right? Yeah. And, and the Ary- Arianism is a heresy, but the Arians were were um, that these traditional proto-Catholic Christians were um, were, were very much at odds with the Arian Christians, and there was a lot of rivalry there. Right. And, and Procopius just and actually mentions that in many places, and he mentions that rivalry in many places in his history of the wars of Justinian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Now, by Aryan, you mean A-R-Y-A-N, right? No, no, no. Not A-R-Y-A-N, like the race. It's A-R-I-A-N. Okay. After a Thomas Arianus, who was an Egyptian, he was a Christian writer and scholar at Alexandria, who began this Aryan heresy? Okay, that, that, and, and it was an, basically an argument over this um, the, this Trinity, right? Okay, and also the divinity of Christ. Yes. That, that oh, well, that's yes. It, it works in with that. And, yeah. And uh, 
Uh, I'm not up on all the particulars of Arianism, but okay. that was it was basically the nature of Christ and the, the divinity and the Trinity that were, were the key arguments between the Arian and the proto. I'm calling them proto-Catholic Christians for want of a better term. Yeah, right. right. The more traditional Christians, but they're not. To, to me, they're not covenant Christians. Right. They're not really <laughs> true Christians. So, so yeah, it, it's yeah. um. That that covenant message was lost sometime after Paul, right? Yeah, yeah. And that so is that, is that Paul's fault? <laughs> oh, it definitely was not Paul's fault. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Verse twelve. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Let me read verse thirteen too. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs when she is shaken from a mighty wind. Okay, what are these verses talking about? Well, well, the um, it, it's it's well, this, the earthquake is the final calamity, I believe, to fall upon the empire and and the disturbances which caused its end. The changes in the sun and the moon represent the passing of government and its bureaucracy. Uh-huh. The stars of heaven. We could go back to Judges chapter five and see Deborah and and the song of Deborah, Deborah, and and um, she likens the children of Israel to the stars of heaven, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and in the promises to Abraham, the children of Israel are the stars of heaven, and the stars of heaven are the same as the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. From Daniel chapter two, okay. the stars of heaven that fall upon the earth are the Germanic tribes of the children of Israel that invaded and destroyed the empire. Not only in Italy and Africa, yet you know the Vandals and the Goths, but also in Britain, in Gaul, in Iberia, the Franks invaded Gaul, the, the Visigoths and the Alans invaded Iberia. This all happened at, at this time, and 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 um, the, the Visigoths invaded Dacia and Pannonia, and and the Huns invaded. Pannonia. And and in um in three thirty AD Constantine granted the Vandals lands in Pannonia, but it didn't do them any good, right? Yeah. The the heaven which departed are the Germanic tribes of the north and east who suddenly were able to migrate in large enough numbers to the south and west, and they invaded the empire on all fronts. Mm-hmm. Over maybe perhaps a hundred year period of time, there, there were huge Germanic migrations to the south and west. And every island and mountain were moved from their place in these great Germanic migrations of, of the 5th and 6th centuries AD. The Germanic tribes were used by Yahweh to judge the old Roman Empire. And, and the fear of the decadent leaders of the empire is reflected in verses 15 through 17. Mm-hmm. But what we have to remember is that the people of Rome were every bit as Hebrew and Israelite in their heritage, albeit, you know, throughout the empire there was a higher Japhethite and a higher Canaanite admixture among them. Uh-huh. But, but the, the, the true Romans and the true Greeks were just as every bit as Israelite as the Germanic invaders. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, typically, our uh, the ancestors of the twelve tribes became warring factions against each other, not knowing that they were related peoples. Yeah. Let me uh, let me read the rest of this chapter here, and this verse thirteen. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. 
and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were removed out of their places. Was uh, was this time period so devastating that we're talking about uh, that uh, you know mountains departing and the and the and the well, well, they're large nations, nations and small nations, okay. and, and it could be seen when we study the history of the fifth and sixth centuries A.D. It can be seen that all of these lands that were formerly Roman imperial lands were now occupied by Germanic tribes. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, I mean, the Burgundians in Gaul, the Franks in, and Northern Gaul, the Angles and the Saxons in, in Brit, Roman Britain. Right? It's no yeah. longer no longer Roman Britain. But the Visigoths and the Alans in Spain. Yeah. The the the, the, visit, the Ostrogoths and and the the Huns and 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 in Italy and and the Vandals in Africa and and Italy and Pannonia and Dacia are all Basically, yeah. Germanic kingdoms by by the sixth century. Yeah. Okay. So, in other words, the Roman Empire is simply uh, falling uh, to the onslaught of all these Germanic tribes and, and in in Rome and uh, and its far flung uh, what do you call it colonies? They're well, all, well, right. they're all on, falling, on every, right? On, on every front in in the Western Roman Empire and and even the Eastern Byzantium had had come to the control of of the the lands. Of the old lands that that used to belong to Thrace, right, and, uh-huh. and those provinces, and they actually bought off the Huns okay. uh, by giving them Pannonia and Dacia, what which um, they they just said, here, you take this land and leave us alone. Yeah, right. Right. Glad to have it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, take this other country, leave ours alone. Right. <laughs> okay. Verse fifteen. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains because the onslaught of the Germanic tribes was taking over everything Roman, verse 16, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Okay, now why why the wrath of the Lamb? Well, well, because it's it's the um, the people of God who, who are doing the will of God by judging the Roman Empire. Okay. That, that's the way I read that. With the anarchy of, of the mid-3rd century B.C., the city of Rome began to lose its luster. Uh-huh. And, and with Constantine in the 4th century, the capital was moved eastward, the seat of government, right? It was moved to Byzantium. In 364 A.D., the empire was divided east and west. And this represents the beginning of the dissolution of the Ten Toes, which I see as the splitting of those original provinces of the empire as it, it was first drawn into ten um, divisions under the first Caesars, un, under Augustus Caesar. That The eastern portion would last another thousand years, but the west fell quickly, and, and at first the Western Empire attempted to buy off the Goths with a large sum of gold, and, and Rome was then sacked by the, by the Goths anyway under Al- Alaric in 410 A.D. Well, when they would still not go away, the Romans even made a Gothic chieftain the emperor, but that still wasn't enough for them. The Huns were bought off in the east with a large grant of land that eventually became Hungary. Yes, Hungary is named for the Huns. Right. A lot of people have that question. Well, it is true. And and bribes weren't enough for the Goths because the Goths really wanted the fertile soil of Italy and the treasures of the empire for themselves. And, and so finally in 476 AD, they took it. Rome could no longer defend herself 
because the empire was completely corrupt and decadent. But more importantly, as Daniel 2.43 attests, because there was little unity in the citizenry. It's every man for himself, and that's what these verses reflect. And, and that, that's because it... Yeah, you know, a nation made up, well, it's not an, an empire made up of diverse groups, that there's not going to be any unity. There can't be any unity, which is what Daniel says. The iron and the clay can't possibly stick together. Right. It can be told from Daniel chapter 7 that upon the dissolution of the ten toes, from one of them would arise ten horns, and an eleventh horn which would subdue three kings. And, and that describes perfectly Justinian, who was the 11th emperor of the Eastern Empire, during whose reign the Vandal King Delamer and the Gothic kings Witigis and Totila were defeated in Carthage and in Italy. This is going to be important because we're going to break from the steam for, for Revelation chapter 7 and get back to it in chapter 8. Uh -huh. and, and during the wars of this period, much of Italy was laid bare. The city of Rome was practically deserted mm -hmm. for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. And Pro Procopius describes that. Rome was down to a few dozen residents okay. during, the, <laughs> really? during the Gothic Wars in, in Italy in the 6th century B, A.D., yes, sir. Right. And, and this can be ascertained and to me that this, that this is the wounding of the head in the vision of the beast in Revelation chapter 13, which okay. we'll discuss at great length when we get there. Right. The empire is dead, but the beast and the dragon, which gives its power to the beast, still live to rise again mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As, as the Roman Catholic Church, right? Yeah. And that's the story of Revelation 13. Right. Okay. okay, so verse 17 at the end of chapter 6, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand is basically talking about the total dissolution of the Roman Empire. At well, well right, and that's why I believe that the scales in the black, on, on the black horse, I, I mean, it could represent the decadence of, and, and, you know, we see unfair weights and measures in every dishonest society, sure. but I think it also represents judgment, and, and that's what the green horse is all about. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, chapter 7. Ready for chapter 7? Verse 1. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. What's the uh, angel of the wind here? Well, well, I think that these are these are just um, uh, all right. To read this as a unit, this this is Yahweh holding back the judgments that are coming on Rome just for a moment that these hundred and forty four thousand people are being sealed, mm -hmm. right? And and I believe that the sealing of the hundred and forty four thousand. That there's no tribe of Dan mentioned here, right? Right. And that gives us a historical clue as to the context of the ceiling. Okay. Now, it, it's, I would rather you read through the ceiling of the tribes before okay. I, I get the explanation. All I'll, right. I'll uh, really, I, it, it's it all ties together in verse 9. And right. Nine okay, and so it goes through verse 9. Okay, let me continue reading verse 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, 
saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000, of uh, Reuben, of Gad, Asher, Naphtali, uh, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. After this I beheld in law a great multitude, which no man could number all the nations and kindreds, and people in tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palms in their hands. Yes, no tribe of Dan. Well, well, right, and and that to me, it because no tribe of Dan is mentioned here. That's the first um, signification historical clue that this ceiling it is. It's a parenthetical statement. It's referring to the destruction that's about to come on the Roman Empire by all of these Germanic tribes, okay? And I believe that this is an assurance to us that wherever this destruction is taking place, that now we know there are many more Israelites north of the Danube, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that. that. That's historical. And that's where the tribe of Dan is. And the tribe of Dan... For the, for the most part, is entirely north of the Danube at this time, and and that could be established that, that they are actually dwelling in in the um, in Ireland, uh -huh. in 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 Scandinavia, and and basically they're not in great numbers in this area of the empire at this time, and and that seems to me to be historically true, okay. and the reason why they're omitted here because they're not going to face the, the tribulations, and here we have the, 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 um, the Roman Empire, here we have an assurance that 12,000 from each of the Israelite tribes, which it consisted of, are going to be preserved by Yahweh, and, and as we see in verse 14, I'm sorry, in chapter 14, the 12,000 being preserved from each tribe, and that number may be symbolic, right? But it basically tells us that these are the people who kept themselves unsoiled from the, the decadence mm. of the empire. Okay. And, and that's okay. the way I read that. And and we could discuss that more in, in Romans 14, where it actually okay. talks about the song and the virginity and, and all of that. Yeah. Okay, well, at this stage of history, would these Danites certainly would be Sweden, okay, uh, and uh, probably... Uh, uh, what's, uh, well, I don't get the Dan in Sweden from, from the tribe of Dan. No. I'm going to be honest. I, I think it's just a, a, um, a, a suffix meaning a place. I, I have to check that out further. Okay. But there's a tribe called the Suiones in Tacitus. S-U-I-O-N-E-S in, in English it's usually translated. And, and I attribute Swede, the Swedes to being them okay. because Tacitus actually says that they live out on the sea, okay. meaning the Baltic Sea. All right. What about the Vikings? Is this uh, too early for the Vikings? Well, well, yeah. We're, we're 500, 400 years before the Viking period okay. here. But the Vikings were, were made up of Danes primarily. Yeah, yeah. The, right. the Norsemen and the Norsemen and Danes. Uh huh. Okay, so uh, pre-Viking Danes would be up in that area. They just haven't become Vikings yet. <laughs> okay. Well, All right. right. Yeah. So the Danites are just too far away from the influence of decadent Rome to be considered in this list. That's well, right. well, the Danans settled in Ireland, and note that Rome never conquered Ireland. Right. 
Right. It's unexplainable why Rome never conquered Ireland. But and and Tacitus, Tacitus um, portrayed his father-in-law was the governor of Roman Britain for ten years, right? And Tacitus portrayed his father-in-law as standing on on the shores of England, looking at looking at Ireland and and imagining that he could probably take the whole island with two legions. Yeah, but he never did it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, 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 did they ever attack Ireland, or did they? No. no, no they, never did. they never attacked Ireland. Okay. Oh, Rome never went to Ireland, and it's it, it's always amazed me that it, it's. I think it's a sig. That there's probably a significant reason in in our religious history that's not um that, that meaning our our um, relationship with god there's a reason why rome never attacked ireland but it's not revealed to us yeah. and, and maybe someday it will be yeah okay all right verse 10 we're in chapter 7 and cried with a loud voice saying salvation to our god which sits upon the throne and to the lamb and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so this is an aside, you know, reflecting back onto the throne of Yahweh, continuing, verse 13. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and from where came they? And I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So it sounds like we're talking about that period after the decadence of Rome when the uh, Christian message was actually being spread through Europe, as you mentioned. Well, well, I think that uh, I believe that Rome hasn't yet fallen Okay. And that, that the, these wars are about to take place, but we see that these um, that these four winds, these angels are holding back these four winds, right? Uh huh. That Rome has fallen, but the um, but but the the major war is about to happen between the Goths and the Byzantines in in Rome, in Italy, and in all the Rome Roman lands that the Byzantines are trying to regain back for the empire haven't taken place yet. And, and I believe that's described in, in chapter 8 of the Revelation. Okay. And, and I would say that Compare believed that chapter 8 described the actual invasions of the Germanic tribes in, into Rome. Mm-hmm. So either way, we see that these angels at the beginning of chapter 7 are holding back these four winds. That They're holding back a great tribulation that's about to happen in Rome, okay. whether you want to buy Compare's explanation or my own, right? Uh-huh. And, and so it's immaterial. It, it's the ceiling of the 144,000 is directly related to that. And, and that's because we see the first historical clue it is the tribe of Dan not being there. And we know, well, well, we can pretty much tell from ancient history that most of that tribe was outside of the bounds of the empire right. at this time. Yeah. And secondly, these people with these white robes have to be related to these people in chapter in, in chapter 6 in, verse, in, in verses 9 and 10 
and I would like to read that again. Okay. It said, and and he when he opened the fifth seal, I saw beneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain on account of the word of Yahweh and on account of the testimony which they had. They're the Christian martyrs, right? Yes. And they cried out with a great voice saying, How long, holy and true master, do you not judge an exact vengeance for our blood? from those dwelling on the earth. Mm-hmm. And there had been given to each of them a white robe, uh, okay? okay? So they each have a white robe. And that's tied to this, that now what you've said is very well correct, where you said this is the people who, who are going to die. Uh-huh. And that's true because we see in Chapter 9 that they have to wait until the rest of their brethren who are going to die are slain. Yeah, right. But right. this is all related to the tribulation coming upon the world at this time. Okay. All right, well, let me continue reading from verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, Neither shall a sun light on them nor any heat. Well, of course, if they're if they're dead, <laughs> yet yet they have been rewarded in heaven. The sun is not going to shine on them, right? Verse seventeen: For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them to living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Okay. Uh, any more on chapter seven? Should I continue uh, chapter eight? Well, well, no, we could we could go into chapter eight, but I just wanted to say to chapter seven that all of this is connected. These people in the white robes in chapter seven are connected to the people in white robes in chapter six, who were told that, that you know they each got white robes, and and now they'll have to wait for the rest of their brethren who are going to die, and and that's all connected into the judgment against the Roman Empire, and therefore the hundred and forty four thousand being sealed are also in that same context. This has to be under... We cannot separate the idea of the 144,000 being sealed and project it into the future or, or over time. A lot of pe- people try to say, oh, the 144,000, that, that's over all time. Well, well, no, it's not, because in the context of the Revelation, it's connected to the downfall of the Roman Empire. All right, right, okay. So uh, it, it could also be construed as possibly a separate uh, a separate sealing of 144,000 this first sealing and then we have a later sealing uh, at the end times which is actually going to be the 12 tribes of Israel of the kingdom well well I I would read all of this in context and I can't project it into the future yeah yeah okay well it could be both then it could uh, it sounds to me like we could be talking about one group of 144,000, which were, uh, you know. You see, I see this 144,000. A lot of people want to think that these 144,000, the sealing of them is for heaven. Well, well, we're all sealed for heaven. Yes, the 144,000 are special, and, and they follow the Lamb wherever he goes in, in Revelation chapter 14. But that has to be... That that mention of the hundred and forty four thousand there has I would I would connect that to this and and we'll discuss that when when we get there okay and and if it's interpreted differently that's fine I'm not going to argue but these hundred and forty four thousand that are sealed here that has to be in connection with the fall of Rome right and I think that it's not representing that their heavenly life it's representing the fact that even though Rome is going to fall. 
and all of these that these people are going to get, you know suffer great calamity that 104 that people from every tribe of Israel are still going to be there to carry on the promises of Abraham that Israel will be many nations and forever be a nation after this tribulation is over. These 144,000 being sealed, it's assuring them a, a continued existence here in this world where it counts. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one more point on the 144,000, because I remember reading a book, I think it's called, yeah, Theomatics, by, of all people, Jerry Sloan, basketball player, who uh, also was a, uh, I guess he had a hobby of uh, reading Greek and studying Greek. And uh, in that book, he made the statement that this concept of 144,000 is actually a more vague. It's really not a, a numerical concept. It's, it's a symbolic concept. What do, you, what do you have to say to that? Well, well, I don't think that has anything to do with the Greek, right? Okay. right? Okay. It, it might have to do. It, it might be a symbolic concept, and, and I would accept that because all it's really telling me is that even though all of this death and destruction are going to come upon the Roman Empire, that enough people will be left from each of the tribes of Israel to preserve the promises to Abraham. Uh -huh. Right. Okay. That, that's where, where I read that it's important. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. All right, chapter 8, verse 1, And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I said, well, what's the space of half an hour? Well, well to me, it, it simply represents a, a time of, of rest or mourning mm -hmm. for, for this great empire, right? It's gone, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So let's... Uh, Get into the seven trumpets now. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given to him much incense that he should offer it with prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Uh, let me just continue with the censer here. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar, and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes. Okay? Now, what's all this business about the uh, smoke from the censer? Well, well, I think it just shows that these that these seven trumpets mean trouble, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's, the, that, that's the way I read it. Burning that's villages, that, et cetera, right? Uh, well, well, absolutely. Uh -huh. It's more judgment from God. But remember, this whole life is about, you know, the, the children of Israel still have to be punished. Right. I mean, when, when, well, we we were promised seven times of punishment, and that seven times of punishment, we, we most people in identity agree began with the deportations of the Israelites by the Assyrians. Yes. So, so when Christ came, he came about seven hundred and twenty years into that seven times of punishment, but which we you generally interpret as, as a twenty five hundred and twenty year period. Right. Right. So, yeah. so the time of Christ is only there's eighteen hundred years of punishment left at least, yeah, right? Right. right. Now, now, I think that our punishment ended when when the tribes had come out from under the power of the church and from under the power of the oppressive monarchies, and we entered into a period of self-rule. But that is not 
for our good, it, it's basically, it, it is when the kingdom was handed over to the saints in Daniel chapter 7. And when we get to Revelation chapter 13, I would like to discuss that at length. Yeah. But what, what it is, is it's self-rule. And we've seen 2,520 years of tyranny. Now we rule ourselves. Our governors come out from among us, as, as we talked right. right in Jeremiah. Yeah. But it's still not doing us any good. That's right. It, this <laughs> is the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh-huh. And, and this time, we we can't blame this on anybody but ourselves. Right. This mess that we're in now, because we're supposed to be ruling ourselves. We're free from the two beasts. We're free from the tyranny, but we still can't get away from the dragon. We still don't see that only Yahweh can be our sovereign. We'll never, ever succeed as a people or as a race until we realize the sovereignty of God and and conform ourselves to his will. Right, right. Okay, verse 6, and the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound, verse 7, excuse me, verse 7, the first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Sounds like scorched earth policy here. Well, well, right, and this, this, Okay, it can be disputed what these verses are referring to, right? Compare, mm-hmm. and I did not have this opinion when I had made my notes for Clifton for his Compare presentation. I didn't yet have this opinion. Okay. Compare, and I pretty much went along with him except for the discussion on Attila the Hun, and, and we'll discuss that in, in a few minutes. But but um, I pretty much went along with Compare that this is describing the final fall of the Roman Empire, but now I'm, I'm of the opinion that that description, as we saw it, with that last horse and, and with the end of Revelation chapter 6, when the sixth seal was opened, okay. there was a great earthquake, and the stars of heaven fell to earth as a fig tree being shaken, and the heaven departed as a scroll. And, and that, to me, represents the Goths and the Vandals and the Huns invading Rome. Oh, okay. Okay. And I believe that this chapter 8 is describing not this invasion again of, of the Goths and the Vandals and the Huns as Compare described it. I, I, I'm now of the opinion that chapter 8 is describing the post-fall of Rome wars. Okay. The, the wars the wars between the Goths and the Vandals and the Byzantines were more destructive, I believe. For, and, and I've read Procopius since um, Clifton did the, the Compare presentation, right? Okay, okay. And, and I've read a lot more history since then, in other words. And I believe that these wars of the Goths and the Vandals and the Byzantines, between them for struggle as to who was going to keep the, the Roman, the lands of old Rome, right? Because uh-huh, the Goths right. wanted them, right? And the right. Vandals wanted to keep Carthage, right? Well, well and, and the Byzantine general Belisarius conducted major wars and defeated these these people. And, and um, I believe that Chapter 8 is describing those okay. wars. Well, now, to what extent were the Byzantines trying to hold on to Western Rome, if at all? Well, well, they were trying to hold on to it completely. Okay. Justinian sent Belisarius with great armies and into Carthage and and into um, Italy and and northern Italy, and great wars were fought okay. between the Goths and and the um, okay. and 
the, the Vandals, and they were very destructive. And the Vandals actually had acquired the fleet at Carthage and caused much damage to, to Byzantine and to Roman shipping, mm. to Roman shipping first and then the Byzantine shipping. Right, right. Now, wasn't there a period uh, in uh, between the Byzantine and the Western Empire that they had uh, dueling emperors or, or simultaneous emperors? With... Well, well, yes, but we're past that period. I mentioned that just in passing that because I didn't think it was that important to, to the um, the prophecy. But yes, with, with the time of from the time of um, uh, Justinian, the early... middle it, it was it was later than Constantine. I think it was about three fifty six or, or something like that A.D. There were actually two emperors, okay. and, and I have it here in my notes somewhere. But there was dual emperors, yeah, and and in in Byzantium, in Byzantium and in Rome, yeah. Yeah. For quite a long period of time, un- until the fall of Rome, for, okay. for perhaps about 150 years. Okay. Yeah. So this, uh, we might be referencing some of that history here, but not for sure. Verse eight, and the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. So it sounds like these uh, wars, uh, you know, being extended out into the uh, you know surrounding sea of the Mediterranean Sea. Well, well, right. I read these to be the the wars between Justinian and Daniel talks about Justinian in in, in much greater detail, right? Okay. Daniel mentions Justinian, and and Justinian was to change times and laws. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh huh. According to Daniel. The ten horns in Daniel chapter 7 are ten kings, and after these will be an eleventh, and he will think to change times and laws. Ah. He will wage war against the saints, and, and he will subdue three kings who, who are part of the, those, the, 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 the ten toes or the former provinces of the Roman Empire, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's basically the description of Justinian in a nutshell, because Justinian was the eleventh emperor uh-huh. Of, of of the Eastern Empire. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. So he fits the description of there will be ten horns or ten kings, and then and the eleventh will, will come from these, right? Yeah. He, he fits that Very description good. perfectly. Okay. He was Excellent. the eleventh Byzantine emperor. He also recodified the old Roman laws into Justinian's novels, the Novellae Constitutions, uh-huh. the, and and created new laws. He fought to change times and laws. Now, now, I don't think he changed the calendar. Okay, right. But he he did institute the temporal power of the Bishop of Rome, and, and that was, we owe that to Justinian, mm-hmm. and the power that the Bishop of Rome had over all of the other bi- Christian bishops, we also owe that to Justinian. Right. Now, was that okay. the beginning of what we have, well, the Roman Code today? I forget what they call it now. But, well, yes. Justinian was the beginning of the Roman Code, and Napoleon actually did a, did a lot of work with, with the Roman laws, too. Uh-huh. Okay. okay? And, and rewrote a, a lot yeah. of them. But Justinian was the beginning of the Roman Code, and, and Justinian's laws are basically what? All of the nations of, of continental Europe have been under ever since. Yeah, as opposed to England and Ireland, which were under uh, common biblical law, yeah. common law. Right. Yes, Very good. Absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Now, now, Justinian what was to subdue three kings, okay? And those three kings, 
uh, a lot of people, and Compare says, oh, that's, um, that, that's Spain and Africa and Italy. And, and they're just talking off the top of their heads, right? Right. It, it kind of is, right? But it's not really. Okay. Because the, it, it's very clear the wars of Justinian, when he was able to make them in the West to try to recover this land for Rome, he conquered three kings, but the three kings were Gelimer, who was the king of the Vandals in Africa. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Elisarius defeated them for Justinian. And Vitigus and Totilla, not Tortilla, Totilla <laughs> in, in, um, in Italy. Uh-huh. Vitigus first and then Totilla later were, were great kings of the Vandals in Italy. They waged long and protracted wars against the, Byz- the Byzantines. Well, while Gelimer had a great sea power and a great fleet available to him, the, the, the Vandals of Carthage, so this um, thir- a third of the mm. sea becoming his blood, that that represents the Vandal attacks on Roman and Byzantine shipping. And, and the, um, okay. the, these other verses of chapter 8 re- refer to the wars between the, the Goths right. and, and the okay. Byzantine for control of those provinces. No, was this... and That's the way I interpret this. Yeah. Compa okay. thought that this was a retelling of the um, the material what we saw at the end of chapter six with the Goths and the Huns okay. um, and the Vandals destroying the old Roman Empire. Right. Now, was this uh, sea warfare? Was this more like piracy, or did the Vandals? Oh yes, it was definitely piracy, but it was also a lot of head-on confrontation. Uh-huh. Well, well, what happened was the Romans made a huge error in in and a huge miscalculation. The the Vandals had a, a very small fleet that they had captured in, in Spain and in the Balearic Islands that allowed them to cross over into Africa. Okay. Right? And when they crossed over into Africa and they started making conquests in Africa, they walked into Carthage, and there was a whole Roman fleet there. <laughs> okay. They walked into a whole fleet. Uh-huh. And an incredible number of ships. It was like the Romans just handed them a navy and said, here, come get us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, weren't the Romans uh, expecting them, or uh, what, what was? Well, this? I didn't think. I, I I don't know what was on the minds of the Romans, but but it definitely took them by surprise mm-hmm. that there was a peace made between the Romans and the Vandals, where, where Rome, get, you know, Rome was re, was oh, okay. capitulating to the Goths, right? Yeah. Well, well, they also capitulated to the Vandals, and there was a peace acknowledged, and and the division of the coastline. That there was a division of the coastline of Africa in 435 A.D. Right. Okay. And, and of course, yeah, you know, the Romans tried to buy off the Goths, and it was never enough for them. Well, they tried to buy off the Vandals too. Right. And, and it was never enough for them. Now, was was this re- related to the famous surrender of Carthage when they uh, they surrendered to an invading army and just got slaughtered, or was that, was that a different? Uh... Episode of I, I don't recall the vandals actually slaughtering okay. the inhabitants of, of the inhabitants of, of Carthage. So they just took well, over. When they took Carthage, I think they just took over. I, I can't. Okay. Be, it, it's a long. It's been a while since I've read Procopius now, but I, I would have to look it up. Yeah. But the um, the Romans in the Second Punic War, okay. they did have a, a great slaughter at Carthage, and they actually sowed the ground with salt. Oh, okay. So, so that 
so the, the Phoenicians couldn't plant there anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was part of the Punic Wars, yeah. All right, uh, verse 9, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed, uh, continuing, I think, uh, this discussion of the, the vandal ships, etc. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. So what's this Wormwood star here? Well, well, I think I think that it represents the same thing, Justinian and his battles against Carthage. And, and that's for want of a better explanation. It, it's the Arab conquest began in Chapter 9. Okay. And, and they are very, very identifiable, very easily identifiable. Uh-huh. Now, Tampere identified the Wormwood Star as Attila the Hun, but I do not accept that identification. I, I kind of debated with Compare or with his statements in my notes for Clifton. But Attila the Hun, despite the Gothic propaganda, I understand that Jordana is the Goth, and a lot of the Catholics said that he was a short, runty, yellow Mongol. <laughs> but that's simply not true. <laughs> that the Byzantines, who had every reason to despise Attila, Okay, right. the Byzantines had every reason to despise Attila, but they they wrote very well of the Huns. Procopius wrote very well of the Huns. There were a lot of Huns that were mercenaries in the Byzantine armies fighting against the Goths and the Vandals. Uh-huh. And, and Procopius described them as tall, fair, and and we have every reason to believe that they're white men. Yeah, and and excellent horsemen and and excellent warriors. Yeah, and, and I I can't. From Procopius's description and, and other contemporary descriptions that I've seen of the Huns, I can't imagine that they were anything like the Golden Horde of later times that were clearly Mongols, right? Right, right, okay. So, so I, I think that Jordanes, he's a Gothic historian. He has every reason to be biased against the Huns, and, <laughs> and, and, right. and so did the, the, the Roman Catholics. And, and because the Huns wouldn't convert to Christianity, and I don't think until the 11th century Hungary was converted. Yeah. And, yeah. and by then it was it, it was mostly of Magyar stock and, and not right. truly Hunnic stock. I think Hun is just a generic term for those last waves of Scythians uh-huh. that crossed into Europe from Asia. That, that's my opinion, and, and it's very difficult to pin down exactly who the Huns were mm-hmm. but because the name was used as a, a very generic term. Right, right. You know, for, for these later Scythian-type um, waves of, of tribes that came in. Right. Now, the, um, the, the, the Germanic poetry, the Nibelungen lead, mm-hmm. in the Nibelungen lead, the Franks, who, who, who were, the Germanic tribes were quite racially conscious at, at this time, and in the Nibelungen lead, we see it recorded that the Franks at, at Varms at the time, which is Worms, we could call it, right, so we could understand it, that near um, Frankfurt in Germany, what was the, Varms was the capital of, of the Franks, and they had no problem marrying off the widow of Siegfried, who, the famous Krimhild, to, to, uh, to Attila, the uh-huh. Hun. 
Okay. And, and that's the way that story reads. Right. And, and they portray a fairly, um, even though they don't get along, right. and they don't trust the Huns, and, and they, they use the adjective Hunnish in a derogatory manner, uh-huh. they still portrayed Attila the Hun as a pretty noble and just character. Right. They definitely did not portray him as, as a yellow little runt, right? right. A, a brown right. squat monster or something, right. you know? Yeah, well, my understanding is that he was a, a tall white man with a red beard. Well, that, well, right, and and that's the I haven't seen that that actual description. It might be in the edits, but uh-huh. I haven't seen it. But I haven't seen anything that that was derogatory about Attila or the Huns outside of the Catholic propaganda right. and, and and the history of Jordanes, right. who, who was Jordanes was the first Gothic historian. Right, and he wrote right. in Latin. Mm-hmm. Oh. He, he was the church figure, and, and he he probably I, I would suspect was biased against the hunt. Yeah, just like the stories of the druids being uh, cannibalistic priests, right? Well, just, well, right. That's yeah, totally made up. And exactly, I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So well, I don't think that the star wormwood represents the Huns as Compare thought. Okay. Okay. All right. Two more verses here in chapter eight. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise, and I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. And I think verse 13 now is announcing the um, the uh, Muslim, uh, you know, conquests. Well, well yes, because Chapter 9 is very clearly the Muslim conquest. Okay. And, and the, one reason why I think that this star Wormwood is related to Justinian, like Daniel Chapter 7 released that 11th horn to Justinian, is because Justinian did assure us by, by defeating the Goths and uh-huh. the Vandals. Justinian basically paved the way for Romish Catholicism to prevail in Italy and, and for the Roman Catholic priesthood to rule over the people of God. Okay. And, and I think that now Justinian, the Byzantines couldn't hold the land. But the reason why they couldn't hold the land was mostly, I think, because of the Islamic conquests, which were just around the corner. Uh-huh. Okay, that they could, and, and right. Europe okay. fell from from this time. Europe fell into a more or less the, what the Catholic Church likes to call the Dark Ages, yeah, right? right. Yeah. And I really believe that this that this in chapter eight here, this fourth messenger, that this um, verse twelve, right? That's what it's describing. Okay, yeah, the Dark Ages, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite amazing that continental Europe fell into total illiteracy. While at the same time, Britain and Ireland, England and Ireland, were maintaining a high level of literacy. Well, well right. What now, happened? according to Bede, in, in the um, in the eighth century A.D., that there were Saxon priests translating the scripture from Greek and Latin into the common vernacular of the people uh-huh. into the Saxon language. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and the um, well, well, when the when Rome fell. Basically, 
what we had periods of anarchy in Europe and, and areas of anarchy where local chieftains and, and local princes vied for power with each other. And, and, and it, it was, there was no, no sun and moon, no great empire or ruler over yeah, these yeah, yeah. people that, that kept a forced peace between them, right? Right, right. Okay. So, so we had, we also had many industries when Rome fell. That we that relied upon long distance trade, ceramic industries, weapons making industries, uh-huh. places where there were salt and and iron deposits right. that that were um what where the the um the iron was smelted and and made into into implements or, or made into bars and and transported over long distances and and these large operations would um, rely on this trade because you could only sell so much iron locally, right? Right. You could only sell so much pottery locally, right? But while these big industries were built up in Roman period, in the Roman period, Uh in the period of the empire. And when the empire dissolved and and the regular trading vessels had had stopped traveling because the vandals destroyed them all, right? Yeah, yeah, and piracy ruled the waves, yeah. These industries just fell apart. They, yep. they dissolved, they crumbled, and, and a lot of people that made um, good livings from these industries didn't have those livings anymore. Right. It, 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 the, the, the fall of Rome caused decay in a lot of other ways, right. aside from the general political havoc, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, very good. All right, well, I think that takes, uh, yeah, that certainly takes us through Revelation chapter 8, and uh, it will pick up next Saturday, uh, I think we'll pick up right at uh, chapter 8, verse 13, because that announces the three woes, and uh, that's the subject uh, of, uh, I think, the next couple of chapters. So uh, it's a very significant subject there. All right, Bill, thank you very much for helping us uh, you know, elucidate these complicated processes here, which uh, you know, both uh, Rand and Compare both uh, helped uh, you know, elucidate the historicity Oh, well, well, right. We all owe them a good uh, yes. a debt of gratitude, and and we we could try to do better, and, and yeah. <laughs> hopefully someday somebody will do better than us. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, maybe Yasha will explain it to us in a few years, right, when he comes back. Okay. All right. Thank you all for listening. Uh, tomorrow, Greg uh, Howard and I are going to be uh, talking about the uh, beast of the field and this newfangled theory that uh, Bill and Clifton have come up with called the recapitulation theory. We're going to be discussing the pros and cons of that. Uh, I'd like to invite you all to join us for that. Thank you a lot, Bill. And thank you all for listening. Yahweh bless everybody. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh.